Hello, the internet. It's me, Simon. Uh, this is the second podcast on this feed. The other one you'll notice was like a year ago. So if this has suddenly shown up, um, the reason that you haven't had one before is because just couldn't really. We were busy um, with a baby and that. Um, but you know, your EU referendum's coming up, so I thought we'd get people. I've got Joel and Chris, who I know disagree about it, and I saw them disagreeing with each other uh, on Facebook, and I thought I'd make them come over to my house and have a conversation and do their opinions for you, which I think they've done very well. Um, uh, yeah, uh, you, there's a few annoying things about the recording. Just want to flag up that the first uh, ten or so minutes, it's kind of an annoying like tapping on the table a little bit in the background, which I've tried to minimise, but it's not gone that well but that does go away so if it's too annoying you can skip forward a little bit and, and it will cut out the other thing is quite aware that julia um is introduced at the start of the podcast and then sort of has less to say than everyone else and it just sounds like like men are just talking and not letting her get a word in edgeway so that's not true uh, what actually was happening is that she kept going upstairs to deal with stuff uh to do with the baby so if you thought it was sexist on the first criterion uh, you're wrong uh, it was actually sexist on the second um, but I think I'd had the baby all day, so it does work out. Uh, I, it's complicated, but basically, don't worry. It is a gender equal household that we're running here, and uh, even if the podcast has not ended up that, look, I could get I, could, I get very bogged down in this sort of thing. Anyway, enjoy the podcast. It's really long. Um, has loads of clever stuff about the EU in it, and uh, yeah, I don't think we get on to say any of the stupid our arguments until the last sort of ten minutes or so. So. Enjoy that. Take care. Right, do the jingle. Oh. No, no, I'm going to put the jingle in after. Oh. Yeah, and this, I'm going to cut this bit out. For the Is jingle. there a jingle? I'll use the same jingle as last time. Politics, podcast about politics and stuff leading up to the election. Podcast. This is the best we could come up with for a jingle. Hello. Hello. This is the second, uh, which is, I think it's been a year or so. And the rest. Long, and the rest. It's been at least, we've been a year and the rest since we did the first podcast. But I think that's fine. I think we're going to do a podcast like this every time there's a imminent electoral activity in some country in the world, which is always but uh, one that we care about. Um, this time, we're going to talk about the European Union and the vote that's coming up to decide whether or not Britain should stay in or out of it. And the reason I wanted to do this especially was because every time I see Nick Clegg or that Mason person on BBC News, he will come on, Nick Mason, this the sort of um, coalesced body that I've put this line in, and he will come out and he'll say, he'll say, Nick Mason on the tape, he'll say, um, he'll say, oh, you must be all so bored about, about us in the political bubble talking about elections. But I'm not bored. I'm interested, and every time you say that, you are wasting valuable time when you could have spent discussing the intellectual implications and cases for and against Brexit. So, with me to do that exact thing, I've got. Shall I list your credentials? I mean, I don't really know them. Do it. <laughs> uh, so, I'm Joel Adams. I am currently employed as a reporter in Brighton, and Simon and I met 20 years ago at the same grammar school in Buckinghamshire, where he taught me the rudiments of. Uh, just, can we just say for the record, did we did was that a pay school? Uh, it was not. It was not, and it that's important. Not, it was a In that bank. grey area it, is where my entire credibility lies. So <laughs> I have to maintain and that. mine. No, and yeah. mine. Yeah, yeah, uh, just... And and my uh, instincts and uh, political leanings for a long time have been of a Eurosceptic variety, uh, uh, or rather an EU sceptic variety, which is an important distinction, which is too little made. And I will almost certainly be voting to leave 
the European Union. So that is Joel, who is on my left physically. <laughs> on my right physically. <laughs> and we shall see. Um, is uh, Chris Hodges, who's going to say things about himself now. Hello. Uh, my name's Chris Hodges, and I am an opinionated hippie. Um, I don't really know really what other credentials I have to be here, apart from Simon asked me. So, hello. Um, yeah, obviously, I... Um, Bum the EU bad. Is that... I mean, are you going to... No, no, that? Okay. staying in. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and we'll probably... Bum it freely and with abandon. I, well, that's how they like it on the continent, it isn't is it? It is how I And, uh, yeah, so I'll probably vote to stay. But I think it's important to say from the off that I might be wrong. Mm. <laughs> um, might you be in, wrong, in... John? It's, it's, it's an almost certainty. <laughs> right, so in fact, whoever... Wins, loses. Oh, it's not a really, it's not. Twas ever thus. Julia's here as well. Say hello, Julia. Hello, I'm Julia. I'm. I've got name. Well, you're the, you're the. I'm the girl. You're the one who. <laughs> well, the podcast must have one. Yeah, we're like the BBC panel shows here. <laughs> yeah, that you're exactly. the girl one. Yeah. But as the girl one, what happened last time when we did this about the election last year? Everyone was asked to predict what would happen, and who's the only one who got it right? I am. Yes. Yeah. What yeah. did you say? you say? I said that the Conservatives would win and outright. And what happened? They won outright. They did, didn't and they? And I still don't have my five pounds. That's a good point. Mm. So mm. the doors have been locked. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason we brought you back. <laughs> Pay up. Um, and who are you? Oh, I'm Simon, yeah. I... Uh, I, 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 well, I suppose this the reason I wanted to do this. Is, I've already said one reason. Another reason I wanted to do this was I, was I saw both of you posting on Facebook from opposite sides of this debate. And I think I am in favour of remaining within the European Union uh, for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. But I think I'm very sort of queasy about doing that. And I, and I do it in a, in a kind of towing way. Uh, I dip my toe in that argument and agree to it with a sneer on my face. Uh, because because uh, I think there's very very good reasons to leave. Uh, I think there's very good very good reasons to stay, and I'm ultimately more swayed by them. But I'd be interested to hear both sides of that because I think I'd probably I don't think I am swayable, but uh, at the same time I, I'm, I think the whole thing's really interesting, and I'd like to hear where we go. So Daniel Hannan, the uh, MEP, I think he's MEP. He is. Yeah, I think he's I think he's my MEP in fact. So often it's hard people don't really know who their MEPs are, and that's probably part of the problem. My MEP, Daniel Hannan, who I did not vote for, um, wrote a book called... What's it called? Uh, How He Invented Freedom. Because he's that sort of fella. Writes mm. books, cool things like I that. I think this was. And the main case in that, and it's a case that I find quite interesting and quite compelling, is that in the world now you have um, various competing spheres of culture. And there is a sphere called the Anglosphere, which is the English-speaking world, which can trace itself back to Magna Carta through various... Um, rights movements, various freedoms that have been established over history. And that now in the world, the Anglosphere, which constitutes Australia, America, India, anywhere that's kind of has grown up and become a functioning democracy on the basis of the English constitutional system. But there are these countries that, that, that constitute one natural supranational body and that Europe, on the other side of the channel, um, constitutes another which we are not part of and there are fundamentally different cultures and he illustrates that by talking uh, about for example the Greek bailout that happened which is illegal under European law they're not allowed to do that but the European attitude towards that was yeah it's illegal but we have got to do it it's necessary so they just did it because it was necessary and they felt it was a good idea to do whereas in Britain the tradition was much more to say no no if it's illegal that is the rule of law and the rule of law applies all the way to the top and even if it's the best thing to do we have to go through the process of changing the law and that there is a kind of fundamental Anglosphere respect for the rule of law and certain freedoms 
enshrined from the, the, the brought up through our history that Europe and America, Britain don't share. And as a result of that, that the British do not have a cultural affinity with Europe that should that allows a legitimate supranational body. So, so that is an argument I find interesting and compelling for leaving the EU. Um, and I think that's a good place to start. What do you reckon? Well... Uh, my first reaction to it would be that is there not something of a egotistical conceit in this idea that us that speak English have a better respect for the rule of law than 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 Johnny Foreigner? Well, I would I would argue that you don't necessarily have to um, suggest that our relationship with the law and with liberty and with individualism is better than the one which is more commonly shared on the continent. You simply have to start from the position that it is different. And I think it's hard to argue that, in the main, the, the Anglosphere countries that Simon just listed do have a largely shared approach to individualism and um, freedoms from, um, rather than a slightly more communitarian freedom to um, approach that tends to be shared on the continent. The way that they phrase it in the, the Brexit movie, which you can watch on YouTube. If you... Which I have not yet, but I don't know. Well, I, well I, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a laugh. Um, <laughs> if you watch, I, just think, well, I think it's the same guy who did the global warming yes. window, isn't it? It, so, it, it, so it has that's a slant. Its, that's its good. <laughs> well, I mean, it's called Brexit the movie. It has a slant. Yeah. I, have, I really only have, have come to this meeting armed with one statistic. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but, it, but it is a statistic which, which beautifully backs up uh, an argument that I've been making since I can remember debating this literally at high school, which is if the only argument, if the strongest argument are, are made by those people who say we should remain in the EU is, yes, there is a lot that we don't agree on, but that is why we need to stay in order to gently nudge what would otherwise be too protectionist and too communitarian a union towards a more Anglo-Saxon free market, robust um, uh, kind of dynamic environment. If that is if that is the only argument or the strongest argument in favour, then you have to show some suggestion that you are either winning friends or winning arguments. Mm. Because otherwise, you're just the person that shouldn't be at the party because nobody else wants you there. And there's a wonderful, wonderful uh, tweet from Dan Hannan today, a copy of a Newsnight poll. The United Kingdom is outvoted twice as much as the next most outvoted country um, when it comes to council decisions at the EU. So in the most recent period, 2009 to 2015... And you'll forgive me that this doesn't make great podcasting. Um, but uh, France has been outvoted about 0.5% of the time. It was in a losing minority. Up at the other end of the other countries, Germany and Austria are outvoted somewhere in the region of 5% of the time. They're in, a, they're in a losing minority. And we're in a losing minority more than 12% of the time. And what the graph shows you... Is, He's holding up a graph. <laughs> is we aren't in a club of like-minded individuals. We are extraordinarily the outlier in that club. And therefore, if you get, if you have to seed and seed and seed and compromise and compromise and compromise to win the one argument, literally the one argument in in five that you might have a chance of of winning, then 
maybe the, eventually the time comes where you think, no, I need to find a different group of people to go and hang out with because none of these people agree with me. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I mean, I would strongly question the idea that the group of people that we could go to hang out with are the Americans and the Australians and the Indians. I mean, I think in terms of, yeah, why I, I, I don't see the commonality beyond language. I don't see the commonality that we have with the, the, the Americans. Way, the way they put we, it in Brexit, the movie, um, is that, that <laughs> I can't be able to watch Brexit the movie twice. <laughs> I have, though. And the way that they put it in that. I've got a job. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. And the way they put it in that is that, um, that there is a sense in Europe that, that, that there's a kind of willingness to believe that a collection of wise masters, of well-qualified, thoroughly respectable old men, can should be left alone to decide the way things ought to be, and that that's something that the British have a fundamental problem with, and you'd probably find that similar fundamental problem in India and Australia and America and Jamaica, I imagine as well. I'm not, I'm not convinced that, that that's necessarily the case because in the main, Britain's been ruled by old white men who were. There is at least the illusion. But yes, there that, is. That, that they could, that there is. And, and uh, we, in the main, like the people that we've sacked to slink away with their tails between their legs. Whereas, in the main, European institutions and political bodies are stuffed full of either failed politicians or, or politicians on the main. Um, my problem, sorry, like just my problem with what you said, your case, Joel, mm -hmm. is that uh, it does presuppose that when we speak as English people, I suppose, mm. that we can talk as if we are... The, the England is a solid body of one mind and character. And that when we talk... And when you speak, you talk about, well, it's... I, it, we sh I don't think that's in the party and that the party. However, if that's just a question of definition, if you define yourself as being part of that body, then that's a reasonable point. If, as lots of people do, I'm sure Chris does, and I do, on depending on the day, mm. if you define yourself as a citizen of Europe, then you might be part of a minority that believes a certain way and votes 75% is against the, the ruling of the council, but you might be part of the other people who live in I this country. Think, you I might be part that's... of the other people who live in this country who think the same as the French. I and think it's farcical, with... actually, to suggest that there is, a, there is a plurality or a majority of people in this country who consider themselves... You don't have to say... It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have foremost, to be, doesn't have to be a plurality or a majority. Hang on. I understand why, if you live in Belgium a country carved out of nothingness a hundred years ago, then your primary um, political affiliation might be to Europe because you have been a citizen of Europe. I'm not talking about affiliation. I'm talking about whether you see yourself as part as a citizen of Europe. Now, you don't have to be affiliated to Europe to see yourself as a citizen of the place. I don't see myself as a subject of the Queen. I detest the monarchy. I've been a lifelong Republican. As and yet I'm quite happy to see myself as a citizen of this country with all of that entails. Yes, but if you see yourself as a citizen position. of Europe... That's my position. But you're talking about... But, but, but but I'm, but talk when I'm, you... I'm talking about whether or not there is a shared polity and whether or not there is a shared... Com there is a shared um, communal sense of belonging. And I understand why, historically and socially and politically, the English Channel... Now, interestingly, we've all said England, and there is a Scottish question, which is an enormous part of this. Can, I think we can... know what they think. That's probably why. Well, perhaps, but but then you're into can the, UK, can the UK survive a Brexit is, is maybe something we should move on to. Um, and is that a good reason to stay in, even notwithstanding otherwise wanting to come out? I think, I think that's the only argument that could sway me, mm. incidentally. Um, that, that for the sake of the United Kingdom, 
um, you you might choose to to stop it from from pulling asunder. But I understand why, for hundreds and thousands of years of history, the channel has created a a situation on on one side of it with a bunch of people who think in a certain way, whose political centre ground is in a certain place, and who, in the main, have been part of one established body politic for a relatively long and consistent sure. amount of time. That not that isn't the case if you live in Prussia. It isn't the case if you lived behind the Iron Curtain. It isn't the case if you if you live in the places where the Italian and German and Swiss borders move around for hundreds of years. And therefore, I think there is a there is a justification why a national identity is stronger here. What I think is fascinating about what you just said is the idea that in France and Germany, they're thinking what you're thinking. The, the, the idea that they look at Britain and think, oh, it's it, they think so fundamentally different from us. And they look at Germany, the French say, and, and, and go, oh, well, they're, they're just like us. I think the, 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 the cultural distance between those two groups of people is just as great as the one between us and the French or us and the Germans. I'm not sure that that's the case, but but actually that wasn't quite my point. I think my point was, if you live in Alsace-Lorraine, you ha- there is a limit for ha- there is a limit to how long you've been French, and if you and if there's you live in the, to, no, no, in the Duchy of Burgundy, problem, there's a problem there though because there's a limit to how long I've been English, and it's the length of my life. And I think you can associate, you can identify yourself very strongly with your history, or you can do as a lot of people do and not identify with it one bit. I mean, I don't. Do you not think you're a product of it either way? Though? I think I, I, I'm to and, an extent. And your institutions well, I've been, are a I've been of we've, I've, we've been a member of the EC for my entire life. So why am I a product of that? Doesn't make doesn't mean I'm a product of both. If we're gonna, but but I think I think address better, what I'm a product. Right, of. I think I think my better point is that your institutions are a product of your history, and and well, I think our are. institutions are. A product I think they are, I think they are, and it's true. But what you're talking about is is a sort is an emotional cultural sense of of being part of a shared polity, of being a part of a demos. Yes, that's what you're talking about. Yes, and. I think it's entirely possible for English people to just not feel that they are part of the polity and demos of England. I think that's quite common, um, certainly in Brighton. I mean, I think it's like you, you, because what, yes. you're, what you're describing often gets framed in a certain way, and I'm sure you're not going to go down the John Major foaming nut brown ale on village greens and cricket, but there are plenty of people who hate that. What about people who moved here in the 60s who I think we're all agreed are every bit as British as anyone else, yeah, people who, yeah. who are second or third generation immigrants who don't have that shared history, who instead have a history of kind of colonial no, oppression and all that kind of stuff. Well, so what I'm saying is that when you talk about the, the shared demos and polity, it, it is ultimately your graph is a question of, of definition because you can read that graph of identity. No, no, the, the graph isn't. There are 28 voting members. No, there are, there are 28 voting members. However, those are the representatives of different constituencies within Europe who happen to be geographically located. That's an equally valid reading. You can easily say that okay. the people, that more people, you know, more Tories live in the South, right? It doesn't mean that the Tories in Scotland aren't part of the same polity and demos as the Tories who live in the South. So, okay, I might be part of the people who side with the French, and there might only be five of me in Brighton, and mm. loads and loads of people who are Britain, but mm. your assumption that we all share one polity, and that is Europe, is kind of, it can be, it could be that, but it's, well, they're, they're, me, e- they're equally valid. I agree, the so same let, me pause you, let me pause you there and, and cede a certain amount of the, that ground, because uh-huh. I think one of the things that has been so damaging in this debate is... Is the oversimplification and the creation of straw men on both sides of the argument. Yeah, Agreed. So, so I would not for a moment argue that all British people think as one 
and that that way of thinking is completely alien to the French way of thinking. Mm. I wouldn't for a moment argue that Latvians and Lithuanians are, to all extents and purposes, identical, while British Tories, Scottish Tories and English Tories are equally identical. Of course, there are, there are constituencies that you can split in any number of ways and by any set of criteria. I think that... Uh, I would be tremendously surprised, and I I can't put my finger on a on a poll to back up my own gut feel here. So mm-hmm. I'm falling into goodness how many traps. But I would be tremendously surprised if if a a significant amount of evidence, an enormous majority of evidence, didn't largely bear out my my basic case there, which was that quite a lot of continental Europeans think of themselves as European more so than do people who live on the island of, of Great Britain. I think. I, that's a, I think that's Possibly. But, but then you still see things like, um, I mean, the National Front in, in France poll consistently at 10% and have done for most of our lifetimes. Um, they, they feel very much not European. They feel distinctly French. Um, things get even more complicated when you consider someone like Spain. Um, the the Catalans or, or, don't yeah, feel Catalonia. Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. Do feel Catalan, possibly for that reason also feel European. And the same could be argued about the Scottish. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yes. Um, but but I, mean, I suppose why I don't buy the argument as a whole mm-hmm. is the I think it's one of perception, which is fairly recent, uh, right. certainly post war. I think all I'm saying is you have to respect it. I think I think I think those. Those of us who, who are Brexiteers, who are not foaming at the mouth or foaming brown ale advocates, mm-hmm. um, and who are coming at this largely from a perspective of independence and democracy and sovereignty, um, would also claim the, the, the kind of common sense gut feel side of the argument. And, and I think that it is, it is a very European kind of state-building concept and construct mm. to talk in terms of the European identity and the European body politic and not at least acknowledge that there is a difference between how between the percentages of people in the Benelux countries um, or for different reasons in the the newly entered Eastern European countries feel about being European okay. and, also their, and, and also their own um, relationship with nationalism and, and their own history I'm just not sure if that would entirely bear itself out. I'll be honest. Um, How do you feel, Chris? What do you do? You see your, what? Which demos do you see yourself? I fairly comfortably inhabit both. I don't. I, I mean, I don't. I don't see necessarily. I, I think it's a in terms of my identity. I, I don't get pulled towards either. To be honest, mm. I it's. I think there are times when it's appropriate to describe yourself as British or European, but I mean, why not English? Why not Louisian? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, can we move on to sovereignty? I think sovereignty is... A, I, was, I think we either move on to sovereignty or democracy. So, mm. And if we move on to democracy, I'll probably get you to talk first. But as it's sovereignty, let's do sovereignty and you can say things. Well, I... I 
the difficulty with that is that I was going to say, Joel, what's sovereignty? Okay, Joel, yeah, right, Joel. <laughs> Wait. What the fuck is sovereignty, yeah? Yeah, what is well, it? okay. <laughs> what, what, this is, we've this been is turned tricky. into a BBC version <laughs> yeah, yeah. CBBC, so, so a lot of people what say... What even that, is sovereignty, right. yeah, Joel? A lot Joel? of people say the BBC... This is sovereignty. What this is, is sovereignty? This though? is tricky on a number of levels. And I, and I think the thing that... I'm going to stop you most... there. Richard Bacon, what do you think sovereignty is? <laughs> A tiny temper, let's hear from you. <laughs> um, do you know what that is? <laughs> I, I, I do, because I saw him singing badly at the FA Cup final. And, and every element, Rapping of, that, isn't every singing element of that sentence is unlikely. If you know that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, um, one, the thing that has disappointed me most about this campaign, and this is, uh, this is more disappointing than its, uh, its comparative recent examples, is how little trustworthy information seems to have been released into the public sphere. That there have been two sides who you can very uh, reliably say have been guilty of exaggeration, hyperbole, um, weak uh, debating by authority when those authority figures are themselves recipients of vast sums of money from, from one side or another. Absolutely. So I think that it would be nice for me to be able to open a conversation about sovereignty with, the, with an unequivocal statement about X percent of British laws now being decided in Brussels. And I don't think any of us knows what X is. We have heard from the former Justice Secretary talking about the enormous frustrations of the amount of legislation that would cross his desk, which he couldn't control because it was coming from a place where where British voters were not sovereign in as much as they didn't have the right to, to vote in or vote out the, the lawmaking body in and of themselves. But we equally have heard people deride the suggestion that a great percentage of our legislation comes from Brussels. I think that... Can I just uh, point of information about the, what I believe are the figures that are most trusted? Um, I'm sure they can be questioned either mm. way. Um, I believe things the most trusted are that fifteen percent is the un, is the actual supranational law burden as the estimated of the, whichever body of experts does the estimating, and that something like thirty five percent is regulations. So regulations which don't have to be is that to the same extent. Yeah, is that is that thirty five percent of regulations which are passed in any given year in the UK emanate from Brussels? That's I don't even know or, the answer to that. I mean, that, that's but, that, but that's see, where we I mean, get into the problem. I just for this, I'm not making so, a point with those right, figures. Those right, are those are. I'm right. resisting to another debate in which those figures were quoted so, to the most authoritative. So right. that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, I think we can say. I think we can safely say that if we object to that, fifteen percent is too much. And if we don't object to it, then fifteen percent is. It doesn't make too much difference whether it's fifteen or seventy five. If we object, it's the same objection. And um, well, perhaps fifteen is lo- is lower than other uh, than than other figures that I've heard. But but like if, I said, if we assume low, you, it doesn't. I don't think it damages the point that we shouldn't have laws being made by unaccountable yeah. councils of ministers who are yeah. elected. So yeah. the point remains, even if I'm going to try and I'm going to try and talk about sovereignty without talking about democracy because you want to address it differently. But oh, obviously, no, no. obviously okay, there is matter. a great amount of overlap. Sovereignty fundamentally, to me means that the the people with whom you have agreed to make common cause should be um and we understand that at present to be the nation state um should be in charge of their own affairs and certainly should be capable of um governing themselves i.e. electing and then dismissing a government whose decision making or financial responsibility they disapprove of. 
and one of the things that the British political system does terribly well, although we could all improve on the first part of the place, one of the things that it does terribly well is gives you the opportunity to throw the buggers out. Um, and the British people have, by and large, uh, uh, warmed, uh, uh, taken that responsibility. Let's not go too far. Let's stick to, also, let's stick but, to the, what's the definition of sovereignty that you want that you want to give the answer as Chris's question. I think that's okay. All right, sovereign sovereignty. Therefore, I think that's val- just to explain. I think it's valuable because I think it's a word that we that's all the time in the debate. I don't see anyone ever sitting down and saying what they actually mean by it. Uh, fair enough. Well, for me, it means that the you are part of a body politic who are le- who elects the people who make your laws you are you are yourself sovereign as the voter as far as you can be in a representative democracy and i think that w- one of the questions that you need to ask yourself whether you believe in in remain or leave is what is the right level at which we should pool sovereignty as citizens um and to what extent does that affect our ability to be sovereign? So, for instance, in a complicated, globalised economy and world, is it completely unrealistic to believe that Britain on its own could ever control their own its own destiny in any way, were it not part of a trading block of 500 million voters and all the rest of the, the thing? Um, and my argument is, and fellow travellers' arguments is, that it can, that it is possible to say, certainly there will be things outside of our control. That's why we are members of s- several supranational, organiz- supranational organizations, including NATO. Mm. Right? If Putin has a rush of blood to the head, then we on our own can't actually deal with that. And if the Chinese economy goes from growing at 10% a year to contracting at 10% a year, then nothing that the Bank of England does on its own will completely insulate ourselves from that. We understand this, but we still believe that having our own army and our own central bank leaves us better able to control our own destinies so as voters. So just to pin it than, down, so just to pin it down, abroad. your concept of sovereignty is that one is personally sovereign over one's own body, and that as an extension of that, you are willing to give, you are willing to compromise and trade certain aspects of that in order to best achieve your aims. Well, that's and that always, can be done at the national level. Or that's the always been the level. basic. That's always been the basic nature of the social contract, hasn't it? That, well, that, yeah, you, that you. Yeah, but I don't. You know, I never see that said. I don't think that's ever explained. But it, but that, I, if we're talking about what sovereignty actually, what you're actually talking about when you say sovereignty is that you're the you're affair, the you're the better political philosopher. So I'll I will happily um, take. Take, I'm probably the better pop singer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to take that. That true. Yeah. That's a and, and actually, I'm not the best one of those at the table. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah. So your rights, your rights end where my nose begins. And I get that if you're much, much bigger than me, Is then that I'm pro cocaine legalization. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. Mm. Um, and therefore, I get that if you're much, much bigger than me in the playground then if my rights are going to mean anything, I might have to be friends with another big person in order to make sure that your rights do end when my nose begins. And that might occasionally mean sharing some of my lunch money with a big person. But I don't necessarily think I should be just one of his homies all the time. <laughs> and, and I don't want to be a member of an entourage. Okay. Because that isn't me being sovereign. Okay, so this question is asked by me in the context of me being um, a, a very happy and fortunate me- member, uh, constituent of uh, Caroline Lucas, who is the only Green 
MP in Britain. And uh, any Americans listening, that's a party. It's not just a skin condition. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um. So, I guess I don't feel that uh, my view and the view of the majority of the people that live in my constituency mm-hmm. is remotely sovereign in uh, the British Parliament. And, uh, you know, I'm just one example, but I think when you start going, you start asking questions about uh, Scotland, for example, mm-hmm. what is sovereignty there? I guess I feel that sovereignty is an emotional word and it, it, it's simply to who you most feel allegiant. I, I don't think it's any, I don't think there's much more you, to, to say than that, really. I think it's you feel something in your gut and then you hang words on it. Yeah, I understand that. But I, but I would also talk about localism because actually you're right. The, the People's Republic of Brighton and Hove doesn't share an enormous amount uh, in common with the body politic of, of the United Kingdom. We've touched on that previously. Mm. But... Maybe Hebden Bridge a little bit. Yeah. And Totnes. Okay. And the non-posh but, bit of Bristol. Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. Yeah. Done. Yeah. But um, uh, Brighton Hove did elect uh, a Green MP, the only Green MP... And it did elect the country's first green mayor in 2012, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ha- and it did until recently have a green council, mm-hmm. and that is the basis on which we understand democracy to work. It is there is a basic responsibility towards um, local politicians reflecting local concerns and local needs and local majorities, and that is why you get this sea of green and red down here on the. On, on this particular part of the coast. If you are Across. an environmentalist of a committed stripe mm. and you believe firmly that that your bodily integrity mm. is only served by the furtherance of, of, of say, a radical anti-climate change agenda, yeah. for example, yeah. right? there's really no pooling of sovereignty at the national level that's going to advance your cause. And really, you need to be going as big as possible in order to get anything done. So it's as reasonable if you are someone of that persuasion to say that the only valid sovereignty is super, is supranational as big as possible and in the, and as the best one available to us the EU will do, and that's and I think I think where Chris is where I yes, think I think, I think where I think Chris has a good point is that you have a situation where the argument is being made on the basis of sovereignty by the Brexit campaign, but that assumes you're not a campaigning radical environmentalist. If you are a campaigning radical environmentalist. The, the, set, the sovereignty case is as strong to go above the national level. So it's kind of like the case itself is so dependent on the identity of the voter in the case that it's almost a kind of an irrelevance because the sovereignty can be kind of, you know, it depends on, on what you on what your what, personal... what you're pooling. It depends what you're pooling, yeah. And I suppose I, I feel no, as that's well... A very, that's a very strong argument and not something that, that I consider. But it comes back to the, the different ways, vertically and horizontally, that you can slice... The demographics, but I mean, I suppose part of it. I, I, I've always thought that um, European fishery policy has been disastrous. Um, mm-hmm. Doesn't work. Doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I would govern fishing on probably a subnational level, because if you have a small area of sea, you're much less likely to overfish that mm-hmm. than 
a large area. Sure, of the sea. but it, but but fish are migratory, and therefore, if you do totally fuck up your particular bit of the sea, then they will never get to the Norwegian coastal waters, who should have an equal share of them. So, I don't want to get too so bogged down on sure. fish, but the point is that um, <laughs> there are. Yeah, but weirdly, that's one thing that I think that where, where it absolutely makes sense to make decisions at a supranational level, and I... so do broader environmental um, issues. But we do have various supranational yeah. bodies that do engage with those true. I suppose, I suppose, particularly the United States. I suppose where I'm going, though, is that if, if, if sovereignty is going to be used as a, as key, an argument. As a key argument by yeah. one side, then you kind of have to take that, you have to kind of then assume that sovereignty is something which does always support that argument in a kind of independent. I just well, I don't think it necessarily does. I think that's I, uh, sovereignty is whatever you want it to be. I mean, every time uh, Boris Johnson talks about sovereignty, half of Scotland goes, "Uh huh." Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. It's well, I think I do as well, and I think that's kind of what that's kind of why, I, you know, despite what I think about the EU, and I'm, like I say, when we move on to democracy, I think it's going to fall rather the other way a bit. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I don't feel part of a. Well, I do, but in a in a weird way, I feel very outside and in objection to the sovereign policy of this country, and I always have. And I really, I really, I don't like I don't like us very much. I'm, no, I'm not a fan of us. No, no, I hate the Queen stuff. Yeah, I don't so really like, no, like no, Gary right. Barlow can fuck off. And no, I, and I kind of so I find, I find it hard to follow any argument that goes that, 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 that goes in that direction. No, I don't. I I live. my my sovereignty, my bodily integrity, is not furthered by being part of a country. Like puts Gary Barlow at number one for that long, right? That's just not something I. It's, that doesn't help me in one bit. But I think my, when he says we can rule the is, world, he means exactly but, that. But mine is. I don't think. I think you sound. You know, um, I don't think. I agree with you entirely. I'm a. I'm a radical Republican. They'd all be up against. Where the do you stand on Gary Barlow? Uh, I would stand on Gary Barlow. Good. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you'd like that. But you would. You would. The cunt. But. <laughs> Julia <laughs> and delicate, ladies and gentlemen. But, <laughs> she, we've not just been talking over her this whole time. She has been upstairs looking after the baby. She's just come back yeah. to say cunt on the podcast. Yeah. Say? Well, someone's got to say cunt. Absolutely. Right, yeah. I love I'm that sorry. it's you. I, 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 can say, I can say smart things too, too but it's, yeah. Go on, why do you say a smart thing? Because you've been upstairs looking after a baby. Come back and say something smart. Um, I think it's very complicated, and I think that most people find it very complicated and there are very many arguments to this particular debate and I think that's possibly why people do you feel sovereign part of a sovereign demos um, that elects the, the, the... I'm trying to decide uh, well I don't really know what a demos okay, is so do you, like, I tried the, to go and look it up upstairs but then I forgot the, so. the, the body of the people who feel some sense of being integral as one I suppose right you better definition than that? No, no, no. I would have used the word shared in shared. some... Yeah. I, I feel yeah. like a citizen... Because um, you're half Austrian, that's not... Yeah, yeah so there's, there's a... a bit in The Wire where um, one of the... I can't remember exactly which bit it is, but there's a bit in The Wire where Spoiler one of them... Spoiler alert. Is yeah, I think everyone <laughs> should have seen it by now, probably. Um, where one of the people is described as a citizen and they're different. They're different. Being citizens, a different That's kind of thing. Do you remember? Yeah, I know exactly what and, you mean, and I agree. Yeah. And so, I because I work with people in care and that kind of thing. I I feel like that. I feel like that. When you're hanging out at poetry nights in Brighton, surrounded by weirdos. Yeah. Right. You kind of see the what what we're calling the the demos and Brexit often are using as a justification for their point. That that's something wholly alien to you. That you've, you know, you're a dropout. We all drop out. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's right. And we're not, you know, we're not citizens and we're not civilians. No. I think there are lots of things, you know, I'm, I'm, lots of things about this country that, that make you cringe with embarrassment when you, when you look at how people would, would see us abroad, particularly the royal family, particularly the class structure. But actually there are lots of things that I, that I do feel an affinity with an affinity to and and lots of things that i think we've exported actually traditions and values that we've exported which are now better protected elsewhere than they are here the americans for instance care much more about magna carta uh, than than we do um, but that english mm-hmm. that english tradition is something that i value quite highly the other thing notwithstanding yeah, i think i do as not, well notwithstanding the notwithstanding yeah. adventures recent adventures in the middle east i'm quite proud of the fact that when a vastly complex humanitarian or military disaster happens somewhere in the world, in the main, the three people who will turn up quite quickly are the Americans, the Brits and the French. And I'm okay being part of that club. I don't want to be part of the Norwegian, Japanese, Brazilian club who have their own problems and choose largely not to be interventionist in that way. There are people alive in former Yugoslavia and in Sierra Leone um, who would not be alive and whose and whose children would not exist? I think, that's, not, I think that's all valid. Not, I think that's all valid and interesting. And probably getting a little bit off the point. My point was that I can agree. I can feel a member of the British um, demos polity without necessarily signing up to the Gilbert and Sullivan nonsense at the state opening of Parliament. Sure. I suppose. I think. I think we've probably covered it. Um, I, I think. I think there's a, there's a valid thing to say that if you that if you are part of the Green movement, that is a transnational. Supranational party. If you're part of the anarchist movement, if you're part of the mm. sort of yeah. slightly queer, stocking-wearing cabaret scene, there's kind of there's people in Berlin who've got a lot more in common with you than you'll find in Tunbridge Wells, yes. for example. So I, you know, that these are supranational things, and that you're you're if if you take sovereignty as an extension of one's bodily integrity and so forth, mm-hmm. then you can kind of make the case that okay. sovereignty is is so up in the air in terms of definition that it's it doesn't really it's hard to make that case for an so are we all familiar with I mean, I guess I'm saying the same thing as you, but just simply that, you know, when people use the word sovereignty, it makes people feel emotional. It instantly makes people think tribally. Um, but I don't necessarily know if there's a lot of substance behind it. Yeah. I, I think it's a rhetorical yeah. device, um, which right. doesn't really have a lot, it certainly doesn't have a lot of intellectual value. I think, I think Simon's Simon's made it made it more complex and more complete for me in a way that I hadn't appreciated previously. And I think it I think it does have maybe too much. Julia's point is it's, it's so complex and can be claimed by so many different groups, so many different strata yeah. um, that it that it does overcomplicate matters. The other thing that overcomplicates matters is when people start, as you say, banging on about sovereignty, which not a phrase that you use, but they do, um, is that. Actually, we all know that that complete sovereignty is a myth. So even if there was a largely um, homogeneous um, sense of of what all British people thought, which was different from the way that all French people thought the same and all German people thought the same, even under those circumstances, we couldn't pretend that we don't live in a world where, as I say, you know, what happens in the subprime market in Phoenix, Arizona, isn't going to affect us, regardless of whether or not we would wish it to. Mm. So. So there is another question as to whether or not the nation state is still the right level at which to pull sovereignty, even if you have 
kind of my conception of sovereignty. I think that it's a matter of perception as opposed to actually tangibly regaining sovereignty. I, I, I don't think that's actually a thing. Um, but I can ab- I, I absolutely think oh, uh, it's a, an absolutely valid emotional argument. Um, Do you think people maybe really want it to be a thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. As, <laughs> in, really as in do. not necessarily just people who are, um, you know, really into England being England, but people who look at America and see this kind of collective, strong identity with art and dreams and mm. all this kind of stuff. And they look at England and they think England invented all this stuff and it's wonderful. And we want it to be ours and we want it to be our identity. And that maybe feeds quite a lot of this argument. I think it's very persuasive. Mm. You feel connected to it. You feel like you're connected to. You do feel like you're connected to the Anglosphere. The more you read, yeah. the more you read his book, the more you feel connected to it. On the basis that you feel like, you know, stupid things like queuing are a part of that identity, and that there is there is an argument, a historical argument that, that during the age of democratic revolution. Britain produced some of the great revolutionary Democrats and they all moved to America and had a revolution there instead. Yeah. And so Pompeii yeah. was on board of Lewis, wandered off yeah. to America. And, and so really the American Revolution was actually England's revolution, yeah. just had in the wrong place and we were left and with Europe, a sort of dreary monarchy. And, and, and we're left yeah. with a dreary Europe, which people... Yeah. Well, because there, was, there were also democratic Europe. revolutions in Europe, but they were different democratic revolutions, yeah. whereas the American and, one was the same as ours would have been. If and, had one. and perhaps, and this brings me uncomfortably close to the rather swivel-eyed fringe of the, of the Brexit movement, but perhaps there is a certain amount of overlap as well when you're talking about identity and revolution and, and nationalism almost, that quite a lot of... That, that there has been a, a totally... Um, uh, a, a broad acceptance that nationalism and national movements and and movements promoting national identity are not only acceptable but to be encouraged in any for for any national identity which was not previously on top. So I've just driven back from the Hay Festival and all of the road signs are in Welsh first and then English. Yeah. Because it's very important that we that we accept Welshness and encourage Welshness and yeah. protect Welshness. And the same is true, of course, of the Scots, but the same is true of all of the countries to the east of the Iron Curtain who had their cultural and national identity suppressed yeah. and who were then... And you see the same argument in Basques and Catalonia and, and so on. Mm. Whereas, and I, without wishing to sound too Faragean, but, <laughs> but there, is, there is an uncomfortable lack of acceptance yeah. and, a, and an enormous suspicion of anybody that talks about England for the English, it's a, it's a haram phrase that. Whereas whereas Welshness in Welsh or Cornish in Cornwall absolutely is not, and it and it does it does make me uncomfortable. You can see why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes me just as uncomfortable that the law protects a Chinese restaurant, um, a, a, a Chinese restaurateur's right to hire exclusively Chinese uh, waiting staff. And the same cannot be true of a traditional English pub. That law makes me just as uncomfortable as listening to members of my family criticise that law. I, there, is, there is no good version, I don't think, yeah. of, of what that should be. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I absolutely accept your point, Simon, that, that yes, I do understand. Well, you obviously, because I didn't actually have to make it. I just gave you a little look and you knew what I said. No, you said you can understand. And I, and I absolutely can understand why, you know, why we should be less suspicious 
of road signs in Welsh. All right, than, okay. Than so, we should be about people talking about England losing its cultural identity. As we've kind because of, that touches on some other quite uncomfortable things. Yeah. But it doesn't have to. It shouldn't have to. Well, as we've, as we seem, we've I think we've, we've dispatched with sovereignty there, and there are probably there are a few remaining areas. Democracy is one. Economics is one. Um, but where you've kind of veered there, let's do like one minute on immigration. <laughs> Because mm. it's by far the least interesting and Absolutely. most, most mm. stupid part of the argument. Absolutely. One, um, really, one really simple point from my side of the table, and then I shall shut up. Okay. It is sensible for a country to be able to control its own levels of immigration because that goes hand in hand with its ability to staff its institutions and correctly serve its communities and build schools and hospitals to cope with demand. Right. Is and it? you cannot be a member of the European Union and control inward immigration. Right. Is it? Uh, to some extent. I, I suppose, it, again, why Why is it problematic that this happens on a national level, but not problematic that it happens, uh, people moving from the Isle of Man to London, to pluck an example out of the air? Because the numbers are on a completely different scale. Are they? Um, and, well... Is it still true that, that immigration makes a net contribution to the economy? I think that was true last time I was... Yeah, I think, it does, I think it does make a net contribution to the economy, but it also contributes to a massive housing shortage. Sure. So I'm, not, I'm absolutely not saying that I know what the correct level of immigration is. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that I would, I would like for there to be intelligent people in Whitehall that do know what that is yeah. and, could con and could control the levers. Is it, is it a fundamentally different problem? Than the exodus of workers from the south, from the north of this country to London, is it of a fundamentally different character? I think it is. Insane house prices in London caused by that great drastic um, de decline in wages in London as a result of there being oversupply for every position. At the same time, the cultural desolation of parts of the north. All these, all these effects are similar. Why? Why is it? Why is it different? Why is that? Why is the movement of people from Sheffield to London different from the movement of people from Syria to Dover? Because, because the needs not, and because oh. it's not the sixteen hundreds, and we are expected to help migrants. And the attitude, the attitude is that you are expected to do that as you are supposed to be charitable. If it was Game of Thrones, it wouldn't matter. You just think, see what would happen. I think you're. I think I think there's another there's a, there's a different argument as well which I think I think that's a strong argument uh, particularly when you're talking about Syrians when you're talking about um, immigration from South Europe and Eastern Europe the answer to your question is okay. because the needs and the and the expectations of the family from Sheffield are relatively comparable to the needs and the expectations of the families from Lambeth and that On is not basis? on the basis of their shared experience and their experience in this country and All right, systems how about Newcastle <laughs> no, no, no! You won't draw me. You will not. You will not. You will not draw me. The the the. Um, but Liverpool, you can, you can come. No, no, no. The, the, come on, Boris. No, 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 no. No, you very mawkish. No, you absolutely. I will not be drawn on um, on uh, any of these any of these points. How about you, Julie? Do you um, offend any northern in cities? Terms, in terms of average income, in terms of. 
um, the uh, food that their children are fed in terms of their the BBC. in terms of, yeah yeah in terms of the BBC mm. in terms of the um, shape and size of their family yeah. in terms of all kinds of elements of shared experience and this isn't about polity this is about culture and and yeah. and uh, society and and shared experience going back generations the the family as you say, it's not the 1600s, it's not even 1920, no. when a journey of 200 miles yeah. would change things very dramatically yeah. for you. In the main, the people that come from Bradford um, to the home counties are not coming for a, for a um, change in the quality of life, which is an order of magnitude different from what they've expected. Okay. And certainly their behaviour and their, and their interaction with civil society and with um, uh, council services and so on Will be brought will be within a certain error bar of the people whose communities they are joining. You cannot say that about the people coming from rural Romanian villages, who are just as lovely as the people who live in villages everywhere else, but who do not share the same, all of the same experiences and expectations. I, I suppose first up, I'd say characterizing uh, European immigration as you know the people from Romania. I mean, the, the Romanian immigration is a pretty small fraction of people coming to Britain. Um, your top two countries are Spain and France still. And arguably a young professional working in law or IT has much as much in common, it, a Spanish young yes. doctor would yes, have as yes. much in common as an English young doctor as, you know... I agree. Someone from anywhere would else. You, but would, you not, would you not acknowledge mm. that... The vast, vast, vast majority of people moving from Bradford to uh, sorry, from Bradford to London, for for want of somewhere more alliterative, um, have all of the shared experiences and 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 shared expectations that I was talking about. Whereas you're absolutely right, a significant number, perhaps even a majority, of the people coming from Europe also belong to that kind of shared Western experience, but that the answer to Simon's question, which is why is it different, is that there is a sizable percentage who do not, and therefore it is not unreasonable for us to for us to try to check whether or not we have the resources to deal with that influx, which makes very different demands on the state. Absolutely. But I think that's only one side of the story here. You've got uh, a whole bunch of people that come into an area, they use resources. But arguably, uh, there was a, a lady on the radio just before the last election and she lived in, what was the constituency that Farage was going for? Thanet South. South. Um, and she said, I am worried about immigration because uh, my kid wanted to get into primary school um, they weren't able to get their first choice of primary school. Um, and there was a whole bunch of Polish kids that did. Now, I can see why you would feel like that. But here's a slightly controversial opinion. Arguably, the Polish person's child has a greater right to use the education service than the English person because statistically they're more likely to have paid more money into it. Well, that says for you. 
uh, says UCL, says, I mean, pretty much says a lot of Brexiters. Um, it, can't be, it can't be the case that it can't be the case that somebody that's been in the country for five years has made a greater net contribution to the exchequer than somebody who's been there for 30 or 40 well, years. It's, it is precisely that. If they've been here for 40 years on benefits. No, you're right. If well, made... No, not even on benefits, actually. It's just if they've been here for 30 years and been using the NHS for 30 mm. years. Whereas if you're a 27-year-old mm. Polish immigrant, then actually you've taken almost nothing oh, out. Yeah. If, you're, if you're earning, if you're earning yeah. below the threshold, yeah. receiving... Yeah, yeah. No, I think no. that's entirely... Uh, okay, no, very interesting point. I think it comes back to, do you fundamentally... Is there? Do you belong to an in-group that you think has the first claim on these things, or do you consider yourself um, uh, part of a part of a shared humanity or part of a shared European identity with mm. whom you can share all of these things? I think if the schools in Gdansk were just as oversubscribed, I'd feel different. <laughs> Fair, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I suppose what frustrates me about a lot of the migration argument is that you feel it, and it, it's it's legitimate in so far as it puts further a strain on resources that are underfunded. But are we not fundamentally there talking about underfunded resources as opposed to Partly that, but we're we're also talking about the farce of the fact that because we can't control Schengen numbers, we have to go to extraordinary lengths to control non Schengen numbers when actually that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand why an Australian teacher should have to jump through hoops in order to teach in this school, when we've already established they are certainly going to be a native English speaker, they are likely going to have certain shared cultural touchstones which might give them an advantage teaching English or British kids, however naturalised or not they might be. Why on earth are we making Australian and Indian and American teachers jump through all of those hoops that we aren't asking, let alone Romanian and Polish, but Greek and French and Spanish teachers jump through? Because it's a two-way street. Because we gain the advantage of being able to get a job in Germany or Spain. Yes, we do. But don't you think that if you if you come at this from a certain realpolitik perspective, mm. and ask yourself in the first in, in the first instance, what is in the best interest of Britain and its citizens? And that's a, that might be a fundamental mm. dividing line. But, but if that's part of the question, then do you not think that Brits working abroad would, would, in the main, not be too hampered by an Australian-style point system? Because a lot of Brits who go to work overseas are relatively well-paid professionals, and therefore the Brits working for German engineering firms would get into working in German engineering firms without Schengen. And the Brits who are who are translators or who are software engineers or who are TEFL teachers would perfectly comfortably find those careers, and teachers as well, would perfectly comfortably find those careers if there were a couple more hoops to jump through going out. But that if, if there were a couple of hoops to jump through going in, and, and again... I am not making any claim to know what the relative level of immigration sure. for different skill sets should be. Mm. But I do think it's foolish to have a completely open door because it lays you... It's a, it is a massive risk factor on resources of all kinds of descriptions, not just the resource of the British people to be able to cope with 
very, very dramatic changes in their national identity in the course of a very short period of time, which they have assimilated with extraordinary grace and, and um, forbearance and um, uh, malleability, I think, in comparison to the way that some other European countries have reacted and in comparison to the way that they might have done. But, but it would be nice, even if you want to keep the tap all the way on, and even if I want to keep the tap all the mm. way on, neither of us would remove the faucet from the tap in the first place because you, you leave yourself the option of controlling something if it goes wrong, don't you? Isn't that wiser? I can see an argument for that. I think there is possibly an argument, a, a pan-European argument, that could talk about limiting free movement of work. Um, I guess I... The, the argument about migration is largely an emotional one, again. Um, and I feel that it's, yes, we, we could intellectually argue about the best way to control it. And I think we should continue to do so, whatever we do. Um, but I suppose I feel it's slightly disingenuous of a lot of the people who are promoting Brexit to say that this is... We a will, panacea for yes, immigration. No, um, I agree entirely. And, and, that's... and I think it's also a terrible shame that, that, that so much of the argument has been reduced to a conversation about immigration. Yes. Well, that um, was more than a minute. Let's stop doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Chris. Hi. Right. I think that one of the most convincing arguments against remaining in the European Union is knowing how the European Union works. Yeah. Um, because when you talk about the European Council, an mm. unelected body, which is the only thing able to propose legislation... And the Parliament, which is not doesn't have the power to propose legislation, is just there to to tick boxes and or to at the very most prevent legislation that's been proposed by unelected people to, from going through. You do have a situation where there is a serious democratic deficit, and what yes. we normally understand as democracy being that I think Tony Benn's case is it who are they, who put them there, and how can we get rid of them? And if you can't answer those three questions easily, then there there is no democratic legitimacy. And I don't think you can ask those questions about people who are in power in the European Union. So, why the fuck do we stay in it, man? Well, man, um, <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I would put that argument as the second most compelling argument to leave, for, oh. from my perspective. Um, I don't think it's as... I think the, the biggest problem with discussing it is that a lot of the time when it's discussed, we talk about democracy as if it's binary. So we say it's it is democratic or it's not democratic. Mm -hmm. And that's not really what's happening. There, there is degrees of democracy and there is undoubtedly a, dem a democratic deficit um, within European institutions. I don't see why that can't be reformed. I, would I, I do. Because an you attempt... Tell us when Chris is finished. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would also say that as much as I think there is a democratic... Dimbledied his fucking face off. Dimbledied him right about... Wow. I'm using that as a verb now. Dimbledied. 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 No, not Dimbledied. Oh, I see. No, no, Dimbledied. It's like he's two Dimbles worse. Okay. Yeah. Not Dimbley. Dimbledied. Whoa. Yeah, sorry. I have now interrupted you as well. It's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife, isn't it? Um... 
Yeah, what I think is interesting about it is that there is undoubtedly a democratic deficit, but at the same time, it is not a secret who our MEPs are. If we want to find out, we are one Google search away from finding out who our MEPs are. There's there's a lack of interest. It's, It's a lot of this information is there. People are not absorbing it. Now, we can have a conversation about why that is, but I think when people talk about uh, democratic deficits... But, the, I mean, the, the MEPs are not part of a legislation-proposing body. Yeah, I mean, that, that is... The, that, that the European Council, the, the people who actually propose legislation who are not elected at all. I mean, they are but no, absolutely, yeah. and I, I think that's problematic. But when they say they're not elected at all, um, they, they are appointed. Yeah. But they are appointed by people who are elected. Okay. Um, compare that to... Actually, the European Council is not the same as the Council of Ministers, but the European no. Council is is comprised of ministers, isn't it? That's right. It's yes. not. It isn't a. It isn't a, a permanent European body of apparatchik. Yeah. The European Council is is a looser, as I understand it, and I'm I'm no good at this stuff. But 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 as I understand it, it's, it's a, compli- the, the complicatedness of it is an argument against it. Yes, as well. I, yeah, mm. absolutely um, agree. It's it's a loose collection of people who do tend to be cabinet ministers in their own countries, and therefore are, are at least elected serving. Sure. But they haven't been elected to those posts in, in Europe. Mm. Um, I've nearly done. Yes. Um, I guess when you compare the European Commission to uh, Paul Dacre, for example, mm. who voted for Paul Dacre? Would you not say that... Me. <laughs> the, the, arguably, <laughs> he has a greater effect on British democracy than any single member of the European Commission. I don't agree, but arguably. Than any single um, concede, arguably. Yeah, like so, I, I can see a way of making the European Commission more accountable. I, I think it's m- less intractable a problem than many of the other democratic hurdles that we face in Britain, I suppose. If I was going to get angry about the lack of democracy, the European Commission would not be where I started. Right. Okay. Um, Paul Dacre isn't claiming to have been elected by anybody, and Paul Dacre doesn't directly make laws. So it isn't relevant to ask who elected Paul Dacre. Three and a half million. No, 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 come on. Come on. It, it is, it is relevant. No, no, As no, I said, no, we can concede arguably there, Joel, because I think... No, no, I, no, no, I, no, I don't no, know. My, if you... I, was, I, was happy to, I was happy to acknowledge, uh, as you were not, I was happy to acknowledge that he probably does have more influence over the British political um, uh, conversation than any one individual in the, in the European Commission or the European Council or the Council of Ministers or the European Parliament. Mm. But he... He isn't on a taxpayer salary, and he isn't claiming le- democratic legitimacy. He's claiming popular and populist legitimacy, which he undoubtedly has, because people keep buying the newspaper, which continues to, to feature the things that he wants to put in it. So the man who owns the newspaper continues to, to keep him in post. That's, that's where he gets his legitimacy from, and that's the only legitimacy that he claims, and that's okay, because that's a closed system. And we understand, for better or for worse, why he is where he is, and who puts him there. I would disagree, but, but I'm not going to interrupt. But, but what we're not, but what we're not saying, mm. is that, is that he should be in charge of actually passing the legislation, or indeed writing the legislation. So I think, I think, you know, over, over mighty editors and Murdoch is probably a bit, that comes down to, to, to money as well. 
Murdoch is, is just an obvious uh, an example. And you could argue Greenspan or President Xi of China as well. Mm. But if we're, if we're going to look at the institutions that we've agreed to claim are democratic and that we pretend to have some influence over, then at least those should operate in a way that we understand and we have some uh, way of controlling. Um, the fact that people don't know who their MEP is is problematic because it, it speaks to the question that Simon identified. Um, and the fact that people don't know who their local councillor is is problematic mm-hmm. for the same reason. Yeah. And there is lots that people who care about civil society could do better to educate uh, people. And there is lots that, that the voting public could do better to educate themselves. Mm-hmm. But even if you knew who your MEP was, that would go 1% of the way to solving the problem because the structures at the European level basically don't defer to the European Parliament. They defer to the Commission and to the Council of Ministers and to the European Council. And those are not set up in a way which conforms to to any commonly understood interpretation of, of how national parliaments work. So, so it's not a it's not an academic point to say, oh, it's it's undemocratic. And you're right, democracy doesn't only come in two flavors and two colors and there are shades. Um, it's not North Korea, but neither is it Jeffersonian democracy. And I'm a big fan of that. And I and I and I want to live in a system where I can kick the buggers out. And if it did work that way, then all of the other arguments about pooled sovereignty, about internationalist movements about checks and balances all of that those arguments would all be stronger arguments because the greens in poland and the greens in germany and the greens in brighton would have an opportunity to elect to 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 pull that sovereignty and to influence legislation in that way but the reality is that isn't what happens and even if it does happen at the european parliamentary level that that's no guarantee that it's going to happen at the level of European legislation. So I don't I don't take the editor point. I don't take the kind of well we don't know, but it, but we could know point because it's about it's structural. It's not it's not um, a question of of voter apathy. But the more profound question is, can it be reformed? Right? Mm-hmm. Because actually everybody around the table says, well, it could. It should be reformed. Yeah. And a, a very intelligent friend of mine on, on Facebook the other day said that um, as if, if Britain votes to remain, as it looks likely that it will, the non-racist Brexiteers should band together. Oh, that was me. I said that. And, uh, <laughs> he was, said I was clever. <laughs> should, nice, band to, it? should band together. Now, um, what would happen if someone started blowing smoke up Dimbleby's ass? <laughs> Uh, funny Dimbleby enough, <laughs> probably fall for it. Dimble fun, D, no fucking. Funny enough, funny enough, I had Dimble honestly, F would break out the big gun. <laughs> funny enough, I had honestly misremembered that. I, I thought it was somebody else, uh, but um, but it was Simon that said the non-basis Brexiteers should should form should club together, form a kind of pan pan European reform movement. Mm. Yeah, I tell you, that's what I, I think. I tell you why why I think that that is pie in the sky, is which is that the combined efforts of the Foreign Commonwealth Office and the Office of the Prime Minister for a period of six to nine months were devoted to nothing but a conversation with European allies 
about whether or not we could reform the European Union in a way that made it more democratic, more accountable and more dynamic. And all we got was an agreement about in-work benefits 18 months down the line. I think that's the other that's the other problem with it, isn't it? It's the idea that you can't, that it's not a reformable system. I think it's, that's, it's well, too big and n- it's too complex. Not if there's one of you and 27 of them. Yeah. But I suppose that partly comes to the, the nub of that negotiation, which I think was difficult, um, in that there is a a truth to the fact that some parties in Europe were not as amenable as they could be to the idea of change. But also, there is it's not totally true that David Cameron went in there to say, OK, guys, let us I just want to make things better. Let's just see how we can uh, change things. He is trying to save his political neck, and everyone in Europe knows it. And I kind of feel like if... Well, they're all professional politicians, so they they all have home constituencies to speak to. Sure, but I feel so like was, if they was there was... as the British Prime Minister. Sure, but if and they all they all know that we're the awkward squad. Yes, but, 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 but exactly. I mean, that's exactly the point, isn't it? Because you were saying that what I said on the internet was pie in the sky, which I'm not taking personal offence to. But <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> got one eye on you. Dimble Dimble e. I'm at least Dimble E. You're after E now. Um, <laughs> If uh, oh, where's that? Can going? I be Dimble She? <laughs> <laughs> Any time. <laughs> um, oh god, no, I've lost that now. Yeah, Where was that? Good. <laughs> exactly. Who before. elected you? Um, <laughs> do you think there's question time based erotic fan fiction? <laughs> I'm a hundred percent certain. Rule thirty-four. Yeah. Say what you just said again. I'll have the same thought. <laughs> Well, it wasn't pie I, in the sky. No, yeah, no, you you said it was it was about me saying it was it was pie in the sky. Um, that that and Chris had said it was it might be a fundamentally unreformable uh, thing. No, you were saying yes. So uh, David Cameron had gone I'm over saying there. People people have their own home constituencies. That yes, they, to, you were. But, and David Cameron had gone over there, um, and his constituency was, as you say, the awkward squad. And I think what we're saying, or what Chris is saying, is that you that he went there with that hanging over him, and therefore his his ability to negotiate was entirely based on everyone's understanding of why he was there and what he was doing and the fact that they knew pretty much that he was committed in advance to not supporting Brexit when he went to the I mean everyone knew he wasn't gonna and I think so but if he had been there representing my pie in the sky movement the pan-european movement of non-racist Brexiteers attempting to make reform if they had managed to link up with people who wanted democratic reform that's what across he did. the continent no, that's no he didn't know that he, he did no he, he did he went meetings. there on behalf with, of the awkward squad with the post no 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 no. i was saying that, that england that britain was the awkward squad and always has been every time you have an argument so maybe the prime minister of britain is not the best person to lead the pan-european movement but the point is that doesn't undermine the fact the fact that he failed to do it in his uniquely useless position as the Prime Minister of Britain doesn't mean that if everyone got behind some, you know, Polish dude who was like super into reforming democracy and he had a massive British, French, German, pan-European constituency behind him and that constituency was part of a broad Europe, not part of an individual country and its own body yeah. politic, then their ability to negotiate at the European level would be presumably enhanced in some way by having more democratic legitimacy within the structure in which it inhabited. I absolutely agree, but every argument I've ever had with a, with a pro-European, with, with, with a fan of the EU, is... is predicated on a best-case negotiating scenario. Well, if we just agree with the next six things that the French put up about the... Com- but that's true, about, that's true of every negotiation maybe, in any government ever. Well, 
I mean, it's, you know, I, mean, I, I, I did all kinds of things. I want an end to the monarchy and I want uh, basically to abolish copyright, but I'm not going to get those until I get into a really good negotiating position. And, and it's going to be pretty difficult. So you have to acknowledge the unlikelihood of abolishing the monarchy and getting rid of copyright. Yes, I do. In that's my what, case, that's... libel law. Yes, that's, that's absolutely, I do. I do. I like, absolutely I, I, acknowledge... I'd like a First Amendment. I acknowledge that I hold unpopular positions and that but, I acknowledge so that my responsibility think... is to argue for those unpopular positions until they become popular and if not, accept that I've got no right to impose those unpopular positions on the majority that disagrees with me. But... If and if we're not unless we limit if we limit ourselves to Britain, you then have a point. If we don't, then we see ourselves as pan-European. Then, then the fact that I hold unpopular positions that are never going to get very far in Europe is something that my responsibility is to argue it pan-Europeanly, not to remove myself from the conversation. Here's here's my question. I think why does it have to be a binary choice? We have talked for years about a two-speed Europe. We have talked for years about... But it is binary choices. It's on the paper. I have to put a cross in one of the boxes. I can't no, no, put no. it in the middle. Yes, no. You, ha- you, have I to would choose. If I could. you have to choose to remain on it within the European Union as a full member on these terms of membership or not. And, and given that question, I choose not. Right. But the implication of it from the Remain side is that... As a result of that, you might as well be Swaziland. And that clearly is nonsense, right? It could very easily... I know very much about Swaziland. No, <laughs> neither do I. Apart from point. the fact that Richard E. Grant was born there. Yes. The yeah, only I thing do. I know about yes. Swaziland. And I think the only thing Richard E. Grant knows about Swaziland... Been I'm pretty Swaziland. sure. Swaziland. It's lovely. It? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. We and do... I think, my <laughs> point is... My I point want to do ten minutes on hearing about Swaziland. That I think that it's our relationship, our trading relationship, our political relationship, our Richard military relationship with the rest of the EU, were we to choose mm. no longer to be a member of this club constituent with these rules on these terms, I think that our relationship ongoing would be very different than the relationship of Putin's Russia with the EU, or Trump's America with the EU, or the President of Swaziland's relationship with between Swaziland and the EU. Um, because inevitably um, that will be the case in the same way that it is for Norway and Switzerland. And so on. So the thing that frustrates me, and we, have, we haven't really moved smoothly onto this subject, and maybe we can circle back around to it, maybe there won't be time. But the thing that has frustrated me enormously is that the Leave campaign has not paint, has been has been badly fragmented and has not come up with any kind of alternative conception of what the plan is. And they and they can't because they're not because they're not a because they're not a political party movement. Well, do it now. I don't. I don't have the answer. My frustration. Right. My, my frustration is that that the Remain campaign says this is the deal and this is the deal going forward and this is what you're voting for. Mm-hmm. The Leave campaign has only got as far as saying we want not that. Yeah. Mm. Nobody has come together and they needed. Goodness knows it's been on the cards for long enough. It could have been better organised. It could have been more cross-party. And there could have been a genuine alternative government waiting to step in to say, these people want the country to be run on this on these terms with this relationship with Europe. We want the country to be run on these terms with this relationship with Europe. And if you vote X on such and such a date, this is what we will implement. And in the absence of that, it's very, very hard to vote leave. 
because you're voting for a negative. You're voting for nothing. Mm-hmm. You're voting for a total unknown. And that's been the biggest weakness of the campaign. Um, I'd be inclined to agree. And as a um, baguette-munching European, I am inclined to wish there was a better alternative a better idea. alternative yeah yeah, yeah. I, I would like to see that because i think it would elevate the debate yes beyond what we've had so far yeah um, absolutely and, and I, w- I should i should i am a baguette munching sun-dried tomato enjoying wine quaffing european mm. um i love european uh, people and countries and traditions and history and mm. culture and architecture and languages more than zach goldsmith loves um, um almost anybody except Bollywood. zach goldsmith but but <laughs> but I don't but I don't like the, the political sensitivities of the, the EU and mm. what it does to us. But but I think that's been the biggest weakness of the of the campaign from either side. Mm. Even worse than Project. I'm trying fear. to th- I'm trying to think what what do I when I imagine what it is that is there is there a vague sense of what a Brexit campaigners think we'll have? It seems to be that there will be trade deals that we can't currently make with um, emerging economies yeah. that were, that are coming to... I mean, they, they say like, the, the only declining continent is, is often said, which I think is true, that in terms of economically, Europe is in yeah. decline where everyone else is not, and that we'd be able to form trade deals with those. So I suppose the idea... It, it, and you're right, there hasn't been one articulated, but I suppose if we try to articulate what it would be, we'd leave. Um, we would make our own trade deal with America and India and China. Norway. Um, we'd be we'd be something like Norway yeah. well, or like Switzerland. Yeah, but it, but but we are so much more valuable to the rest of the European Union members than Norway or Switzerland are. So if we said, yeah. you know what, we don't want to be part of the European Rapid Reaction Force, but we do want to share the following levels of military technology and military secrets, mm. and and pull this amount of resource for a pan-European defence body in case Ukraine goes up in smoke. Do we honestly think that Jack Delors would say? Absolutely, that's that's ridiculous. You're no longer part of the club, so we don't want the fucking SAS. No, I don't. No, think, I don't think not. anyone realistically does same, think. However, I think people. The same do is think. true of, of of us economically. However, Joel, I do diplomatically. I do think that while people don't go as far as say, I, I'm sure there are people who say this. I don't think anyone serious is, would really sanely suggest that what they're that they would go. No, no, we're not interested. Not part of the club. However, this is an organisation which has to, as you well know, has to ship people from one part from one country to another in order to vote on conversations they've just had at huge expense they have to vote in strasbourg having debated in brussels right this is a this is a an organization which took 15 years to decide whether or not vegetable oil made some made chocolate non-chocolate in an organization that can do that (laughs) the idea that they're gonna they're gonna say of course we can share that technology tomorrow no way. But it's, take, to, it'll take but it's not going to be decades. tomorrow. But it's not going to be tomorrow as it is. But it will take such a very long time, and there's no reason to think. And this is, I think, what convinces me ultimately to stay in. We are subject to the bureaucratic idiocies of the European Union, whether we're a part of it or not. Yeah, no. A strong argument I have seen you make on Facebook is: if the neighbours are having an all-night rave and you're invited, and you're not going to get any sleep either way, then why tear up the ticket? Yes. And and I have some I have some sympathy with that. And However, to be, here's and a crazy to be, but let's here's elaborate. a crazy thought. Before you, before no. you debunk it, let me actually elaborate to, to, to make that even clearer what that means. If you are subject, as Switzerland is, to all of the trade regulations of the European Union, every time Daniel, you want to Daniel trade Hannan says they are subject to none of the regulations. Well, okay. My friend Pepe says they're subject to all of them. She's Swiss. But she probably doesn't I've heard work Swiss in every people. single economic okay. sector of the <laughs> Somewhere Swiss between the two of those things is the truth. <laughs> yes. You are certainly subject to. Trade. You, you if I wish to sell things to a German, 
yeah. I am subject to the rule, for example. One of the stupidest things that you've ever done, one of the reasons that first made me sort of worry about the, the entire existence thing, I'm subject to a rule that says if I want to sell a digital good to a German, yeah. I'm not allowed to charge them the UK rate of VAT. I have to work out where they live as I'm selling them a digital good and then charge their rate of VAT, whatever that may be. And I have to do that if they're Spanish. I have to work out that they're from Spain. So I have to send a query over the internet to work out where they're coming from. Um, if they've got a VPN, I'm screwed. And I've got to work out where they're coming from, work out what the VAT rate added to the price, and then charge them. And that's an EU-wide regulation. It's completely insane, completely stupid, and totally unworkable. No one does it. And, it's, and you're subject to like you unlimited yeah, fines. Yeah, yeah, but, no, but, but huge amounts of people don't do it. You're subject to unlimited fines if you... I used, you know. to, I used to export hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of goods to the EU, and, I, and we didn't do it that way. No, it's changed. But, that's, they, they, currently, it's the digital goods. 2015, it changed. Changed oh, to digital, digital goods. goods. It is now going to... The intention is to change it to physical goods as well. So, when, right. so you would, if you would go back into that business, you would have to do that. It's completely mental. Yes. However... Yes. I'm still going to want to sell things to a German. Yes. Especially in my particular position where yes. that's mainly who I sell things to, yes. apart, apart from British people, it's just some Germans. And I still have, so I have to keep that in place and I have to do that anyway. And I've got no chance, no matter what I do, no matter who I write to, I've got, I've got as much chance as I have of changing US policy. But let me take you, but let me take you back to um, the, the graph of two hours ago and the fact that we get voted down twice as often as the next most oft voted down member. No, no. As right. Hit me out, hit me out, hit me out. How's this for a crazy thought? At the moment, we are one of 28, and we are, by an enormous margin, the most commonly dissenting voice. So, in every meeting, there is already an inbuilt antagonism. We already represent the awkward squad. Everyone's already rolling their eyes as soon as the British delegation walks into the room. Because there's lots of things on which we don't see eye to eye and lots of things where we have different priorities. If you take that dissenting voice out of the room of 28, then the other 27 can get to their own conclusion a lot quicker. And then rather than being one voice in 27, you're then one voice in two when you then go to them and say, right, okay, this deal where you levied 17% on something and we want it to be 12 and if we'd been one voice in 28, the, the overall decision might have been that, where did I start? 17. And we wanted it to be 12. The overall decision might have been that we ended up with it being 16.7. But now we want it to be 12. And we're debating between the UK, population 70 million, fifth largest economy in the world, and the EU, population 430 million, third largest economy in the world. And we still want it to be 12. And you've decided it's 17. So now we're going to agree on 15. Um, we're not going to agree that, on 12. All of, all of that. But I, all of this, that. Is, this is coming out all of my of mouth that. as it's happening in no, my brain. All of that but makes absolute sense. Some, is there no, not all of that makes sense. That? It, it makes absolute sense and you're absolutely right. However, the other people in the constituency of people who do not wish to be paying local VAT on digital goods does not constitute Britain. The, lo- the constituency that doesn't want to do that is me and other people in Germany, in France, mm. in Spain, Poland, wherever, who are running companies selling digital goods across Europe. Mm. And the rest of this country who aren't doing that got no particular reason to care. Like if I pull my corporate sovereignty, as it were, yeah. with the people who are doing similar to me across Europe, those are the people who want to who agree with me and want to make that argument. And well, that is a strong they live in well, higher tax regimes. In the main they live in higher tax regimes which have more redistributive tax policy. And in the main you don't. 
though you might be better off putting your corporate sovereignty. Although in this but case, the, this you're is probably well, I, mean, that, I mean, on this, this is, that's not the, that's not the important thing. That's not the point. The problem sure. here is not it's not the level of the taxation. Level of taxation. The problem here is having to write rewrite the entire website so that you. So that you charge different prices to different people based on where they live when you can't guarantee that you know where they live because yeah. of VPNs yeah. and so on. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a technology issue. But the point there is, is much more that your entire argument, which is valid when you proceed from the assumption that the constituency you're part of is Britain. And I'm saying the constituency I'm part of when I object to that is not Britain. The constituency I'm part of when I make that objection is the constituency of people running digital goods marketing yeah. companies. Yeah. And your and your initial point that actually you're a member of a number of constituencies, indeed, some of which. And when I make that argument, state. that's the constituency I'm in. Yes, I mean the, the sort of the pro technology yes. people, you know, and, and of whom you know I've got much more in common with like the pirate party in Sweden than I do right. with any of the parties who've stood successfully elected in this country. Right, uh, you know, on, when I'm in, in that constituency. Yes. So that's that's one point there yes, um, on those issues. I think that's covered that. Anyway, where, where, where should we go now? I mean, because we kind of got more economics. Uh, yeah. Um, I can I introduce you to what I regard as the most compelling argument. For Put it away, in Chris. You. I was just thinking um, that as well. I thought I can't. Put it oh. away. <laughs> I wasn't going like, to go there, but you did it. Did, did we all agree that? Though? What is wrong with it's you? Because you've got your knob out on the table. We can't just. <laughs> it was getting some air. <laughs> He's got opinions too. God, no. So um, put Nigel back. <laughs> <laughs> um, that bit, yeah. That's staying in. Oh fucker. Um, <laughs> so. So what's what's my best argument that I haven't thought of? No, no. Chris is about to introduce us to. Yeah, yeah. To my best argument, um, it, it comes from Steve Hilton, um, and he said, and I think this cuts to the nub of the a lot of the emotional reasons why people want to leave the mm-hmm. EU is that he said people see power centralising more and more and they feel less and less in control of their lives. And I was listening to him and go, bang, you have nailed it, as in the problem. What I absolutely disagree with him about is the idea that leaving the EU is the solution to that problem. Yeah. Um, I think that when you see everywhere you get uh, societies that are getting more and more stratified, a lot of that is to do with economic liberalism without any real attempt to redistribute the cash in a systematic way. Um, That's not going to stop when we leave the EU. If anything, it will get worse. Because if you think about Britain's fairly neoliberal stance since about 1979 compared to the rest of the European Union, if anything, the EU may give us a modicum of protection from this idea that we're feeling more and more out of control. That's it. I think that... I think that more people should read local newspapers. I think that not only because <laughs> I think more people should buy cult indie records. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing alright. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think because it was not until I wrote for a local newspaper that I regularly read a local newspaper, and it's only in reading a local newspaper, and and I suspect also being in now in my early thirties, 
um, that that I am more abreast of um, both the decisions that are being made locally, which affect my life or have the potential to affect my life, particularly as I'm as I'm a full adult here with the potential to buy a house or have a child or interact with social services yeah. in a it's way a, that you don't. It doesn't do necessarily that. change your, you know, your, who you vote for, but it definitely changes how you think about what you're voting for locally, which yes. never mm. ever occurred to me until I had a child. Not not once. No, well, no, because as a as a childless young adult, there are very few local services. Yeah. And that there's you, very little that legislation you... that dramatically affects you. Whereas yeah. when you have a child, it's yeah. it does. And you know, and you're not you're not laying down a pension when you're 25 yeah. and so on. So, yeah. but it was but it genuinely is only since I've started reading local news that I've not only that I've become aware of the decisions that have been taken taken, but that I have become fully cognizant of which decisions are taken yeah. at the local level. And I consider myself. A politico and a news junkie and somebody who is um across the whole broad section of society particularly for my age group i would have said i was extremely well informed i would have easily put myself in the in the top decile of of of, of that analysis right and i have no bloody idea what councils are doing and, and who's doing it and how they're spending your money and and i think the system is not quite as broke as a skim reading of it would have people believe because TTIP gets a lot of the press, but it's not going to affect how frequently your bins get collected, certainly not in our lifetime. And the same is true for the EU and the same is true for the UN and the same is true of the Scottish referendum and, and Parliament, the first past the post and all the rest of it, that these, that these arguments that we participate in are not quite as... Um, uh, do not have quite as much impact on our day-to-day -day lives as I think sometimes they are built up to have. Whereas the arguments that we can be rather unengaged in, whether it's local library provision or, or the actual cut and thrust of local politics or whatever else, are much more likely to affect our day-to-day -day experience. And I wonder whether the answer to Steve Hilton's analysis of the problem is equally nothing to do with leaving the eu but is to do with it goes back to your tony ben quote simon about who are they probably misquote how did they put them there and uh, well he said so many things so many of which are written down likelihood is in the kind of shakespearean monkey sure. analysis he did say that at some mm. point um and how can i kick him out um maybe maybe rather than worrying too much about power being centralized and, and supranational governments taking it all we should just acknowledge that actually if we if twice as many people voted in local elections, then local councillors would be twice as good because they'd be twice as well scrutinised. And if twice as many people indeed read local newspapers, then they'd be twice as well scrutinised. <laughs> so better decisions would be taken, and and your and your um, local voice and your own personal voice, your own mandate, your own sovereignty, would be better represented in those in those fields where kind of in the, in the things that you come up against most often in your life. So I, I agree with you and with Steve Hilton. I think people do get that from the news. Mm. But I don't, like you, I don't think leaving the EU is the answer necessarily. But, but I think probably there is a partial answer in being more engaged at a, at a more local level. But I suppose what my point is, is that it's the EU serves as a lightning rod for this disaffection. Um, 
and if you think about things like, I mean, you you had that whole conversation and didn't at any point talk about uh, corporations. Um, and if you think about corporations paying tax in particular, um, it's something that is apparently slipping out of the control of uh, national governments. The EU is in a much, much better place to control corporate tax evasion um, no, than... No, it's not. It could be, and maybe it should be, but it isn't. And it because? Isn't because it's a, it is a poor implementer of policy. It's well, a no, poor, okay, it's a poor that's maker. Not, that's not its position. Its position, it could be in a position and do it poorly, but I mean, that doesn't address whether it's in a good position to do it. Surely it is in a better position as, a, as representing no, one no, of the world's no, no, largest because, trading blocks. No, because, because if it can't... If it's if its track record is absolutely that it takes fifteen years to decide what what's chocolate, and it can't address well, a different point. Is and it, it can't address the biggest supranational issue of the age. Which I agree is, that it be, which it's is currently mass, rubbish which is mass migration. Then how can we possibly expect Unilever and ICI to take it seriously? Well, I don't think. Well, because I mean, it's come on, it, because you can because because Unilever will take it seriously if the people who pay for their most expensive things almost entirely. Uh, d- Suddenly, say you can't have access to a market unless yeah, you start paying your tax. I mean, of course, but, so, but the they fact do, that they, they suck, the fact they that they're in a whereas, whereas if it, I'm if I am the striker in the FA Cup final and there is an empty goal in front of me, I am in a good position to score that goal, even if I am crap at kicking and I end up kicking it over the top of the goal. I'm still in a good position. Yeah, but all and, right, and, but it's, it's rare for either of us to be doing a football analogy. But to continue your analogy, I just thought you did it. I wanted no, to get fine, in there, and, but yeah. therefore, to continue your analogy, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is one fat overweight striker on the edge of the penalty area and one lithe, brilliantly skillful guy who's made a run from the centre circle. My point is, the little guy, who isn't in quite as good a position, has the strength and the skill and the determination and the, and the, and the agency to make the thing happen, to score the goal. The fact that the wheezy old bloke is at the edge of the penalty box is irrelevant because he's wheezy and old. I mean, so, I guess... So I, so I think that, you know... The Cameron summit on um, transparency and corruption did have a couple of, of positive outcomes because it was a multinational conversation w- between sovereign actors, between national parliaments that could get shit done in a relatively short period of time. Now, if the B- British Virgin Islands had turned up, we'd be having a very different conversation <laughs> about whether or not we can control whether or not corporations pay the tax, which they should do, by the way. Um, but But I do think that 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 is quite a good argument on my side of the table. That if you want something done, ask a national parliament. Don't kick it to the UN. Don't kick it to the EU. Occasionally kick it to NATO, but military organisations get things done in a different way. But, I mean, I think the with the tax example in particular, the big problem with that is that that's not how it's going to play out. What would happen mm. is that we would and have been cutting our corporation tax and not closing our loopholes to be more competitive with other nations. We're on a race to the bottom. The only way that we can solve that is on a larger level. Um, And I think leaving the EU isn't going to help that. But none of the people who are causing the biggest problems are subject to any influence by the EU. No. Are they? You mean tax havens? Yeah. I mean, Liechtenstein and Jersey and Panama and the BVI, even the ones, and Monaco, even the ones on the continental mainland. 
But Europe, but Europe, 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 a functioning Europe would be in a position to place restrictions on companies that use tax havens, Mm. and and would be able to use its clout as a customs union in order to damage the profits of corporations, in order to discourage them using tax havens in a way that could have a beneficial effect. I think it's fair. I think think, a unified world government could create a colony on Mars, but but you've got to start from the position that we're currently in. So surely the EU should start. Well, no, because it's but it's sclerotic and competitive and and internecine, and it doesn't it doesn't achieve the things that it's that it's in a position to do. Yes. Okay. So so there is no point. You know, one of the things that my 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 family business is is retail, and from time to time when I used to work there, I would flag up to my father, who's managing director, the fact that a competitor around competitor of ours was advertising a similar product at a lower price, um, and. From time to time, he would point out to me that they were out of stock. And he'd say, well, when I haven't got any of those, mine are that cheap as well. And actually, you you have to be comparing like with like in order for there to be any point in making the comparison. Okay. Now, look, it is, uh, that's that's an hour and 43 minutes. Wow. So we have covered, I think, actually, what I'd like to say, what we failed to cover the main arguments, I think, about the EU, which are, are pretty much are that, um, that it's kept peace since 1945. That's oh, one. God, we haven't even got a peace. That's the reason I'm here. Nonsense. It's got nothing to do with the EU. It's all to do with what? NATO, isn't it? It's a lot of it's to do with NATO. You, a lot of. Only had a sentence on each of these arguments. Fine. Uh, peace. There has been peace in Europe since 1945. A. There hasn't. There've been a huge number of wars around yep. the periphery. And NATO. Um, B. NATO. And C. C. The the sheer movement of history, technologically and diplomatically since 1918 and 1945 mean that we know we don't need the EU to stop Auschwitz. Yeah, right. Freedom of movement keeps the peace. Freedom of trade keeps the peace as well? To a degree. Okay. Uh, trade generally, we could be, ri- be richer if we leave the EU or poorer, one of those? Uh, That's tem- one of the main arguments. In temporarily, it? probably poorer. Yeah. Over 20 years, I'm not going to be an idiot enough to say. Right. House prices, are they going to go up or down? Uh, I, I, will, no I will step back half a step and say I agree with Chris. Initially, there would certainly be a bumpy... Sorry, I hit the table again. That it was good on that point because you were saying the word bumpy, so yeah. good for an <laughs> Initially, there would be a bumpy period, whether it's house prices or trade in general, mm. because market instability leads to economic discomfort. Yeah. Um, yeah. But over the course of 10 or 15 years, there's no suggestion that anybody knows um, where we would be. Yeah. But, but we are an extremely successful trading nation with strong trading relationships both within and without of Europe. Defo. Chris, they want to make our bananas straight? It frustrates me that this debate is taking place within the context of 20 years of misinformation from the right-wing press. Mm. Joel, you are a massive, you are a massive xenophobic racist. You just sit there on the white cliffs of Dover shaking your fists at the French because you just hate other people so much. Uh, no, That's I don't. What you're like. No, I don't. Uh, I love lots of things about Europe and European people and European culture, but I do think that it is okay, if it is okay to care about um, the French language and be a member of the Academy Francaise, and if it's okay to be a Scottish nationalist, then it is probably also okay to have a part of the argument about national identity. No, forgive me, a part of the argument about national sovereignty, national decision-making and and political in-groups be about 
national identity. Yeah, all right, Tommy Robinson, Christ. Uh, <laughs> Chris, on your side, is like David Cameron and George Osborne and Nick Clegg. I hate them. They're on your side. Right, yeah, okay. Um, but like George Galloway. Yeah, on your side, Joel, <laughs> is George Galloway. I think you can probably find George Galloway on every side of every debate, can't you? Have we now covered all of the uh, arguments about the <laughs> EU? I think we've done those, those last few ones at the yeah, end. I think so. If there's any more tough, uh, so, so uh, there is media. there is one other, okay, one which more. is which is about whether whether any impact it will have on the British domestic political scene should be relevant to how you vote. Oh, should we it? didn't even do Scotland. I know. Well, we didn't we didn't do Scotland, which is fucking okay, so crucial. You're right. Sentences but, each. Okay. On ca- my thing was on Cameron. Yeah. Yeah. Which is I don't care. Yeah, he's only going to be around for a couple of years after the after the referendum. I don't care anyway, either. do you care? I think mean, you so have to take this all is, the This is about into, a fifty-year future of the country. Account. You can't say, "Oh, well, I don't really care what effect it has on Europe." You have to give it. Well, you don't have to, but you will be foolish. So would it be not worth fighting for Brexit just to bring down the government? No, no. Okay, good. No, no. no. Julia, what no. is going to happen? <laughs> is which way is it going to go? Uh, it's going to go stay. We're going to stay. Um, oh, and what the kind of margin? Um, I think. I think, I actually think it's probably going to be stay more than people think, because it was 50, 51, 49 or something, wasn't it, the other day, a few months ago? I think ago. that was like a phone call. Uh, yeah, the polls are they a bit count. like up in the air. I think it's going to be like, going to be around 60% to remain on the, basis, no, on the basis that um, possibly 55. I think, I think yeah. maybe that's more, yeah. I'd, I'd, say, I'd say 55 yeah, I think oh. I think fifty five or fifty six. On the basis remain. that I think, on the basis, like I said before, that people are not that clear what they're leaving. I've heard and it said so, that undecideds are a vote for in at the point of the poll. Yeah, and and I think and I think I do think because I'm very sympathetic to both sides, and I think I think it, it's a shame that the debate hasn't really had much clarity. But then the EU doesn't have much clarity. So, um, That's a really yeah. So I think that's probably why. Prediction, Chris? Um, well, I was going to say that there's going to be less than a percentage point in it. Really? Um, wow. But uh, Julia's got form, so she's probably right. <laughs> well, no, actually, Joel and me both agreed on 55, so we can share our five pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think 55 is probably about realistic. I haven't seen the stats on the vast number of undecideds, and I think, Simon, you're right. I, I would be surprised if a large percentage of those broke for leave. Yeah, because of the, not because of the point I made, but but to reiterate, people have not been given a vision of what they're voting for if they vote leave. Mm-hmm. It's an entirely negative. I don't like it. Um, okay. With a lot of uncertainty, the the strongest argument for remaining in the EU, in my humble opinion, is one that we haven't touched on at all, which is that there is no doubt that the margin for remain in Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales will be sixty five percent or greater. Yeah. And therefore, the the mandate to secede from the United Kingdom were the UK to vote by a very tiny margin mm. to leave the EU under those circumstances. The mandate for Scottish independence would be unarguable. I yeah. think that's very convincing, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think also, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that there's lots of people that I know who live in Europe who really don't want us to fuck their lives Yeah, we up. didn't mention that I because mean, that's quite an important yeah. point. You kind of, there are people who I work with who have. Who have a house share in Spain or whatever, and mm. that's the, that's a good enough reason for them. But to except, but it comes back to 
Who says they'll lose that? Well, that's the thing. That's Who what I mean says... about clarity. They, yeah. as far as they're concerned, they would. Yeah. And and that's. I think we don't, we don't want to we don't want to retread. Yeah. Anyway. I think, um, okay, so that's. I think we. I, I. To be honest, I think I go your first line too. So I'm. I'm saying sixty for a main. Okay. I think. Well, I think it's as close as you think. I think. I think the undersides will all break, and mm. that's what I think we'll see. Um, on that basis, just what, as one final thing, if we are, as we're all basically saying in. Are you saying 51 in or 51 out? 51 in. 51. So we're all basically predicting in. What do we do now? I mean, because it seems like we all agree. For And I think we've actually probably four different approaches. I think all four of us believe different things about this. But I think we all seem to agree about certain things. Like, it's really rubbish at some of the democracy stuff. And, like, mm. Mm. it's really... But then there are things that are really wrong. And seeing as we're probably staying in, and we all kind of think that, mm. is there any hope that people who've been campaigning for Brexit can join with some of the people who think we should stay in and actually form some kind of pan-European pie-in-the-sky movement to... Based on social media and... Well, I don't know, but every everyone who seems to be thinking about it seems to say the same thing, which is like, oh, I don't like some of these institutions in the EU, but I don't think we no, can leave. I think I think the people who run the EU are baddies. I think when you think about the... I think, I think they are time-serving, self-serving, they are a time-serving, self-serving cabal. And I think when you, if in order to have genuine groundswell democratic movement, you have to start with either the possibility of violent revolution, which is extremely unlikely, and, and thank goodness for that, or you have to start with a democratic class, a, a ruling class, that is basically open to being told that they are wrong and being advised on on how to go about better representing the, in, the the interests of their constituents, I do not believe that the people that have that are career Brussels people are interested in a combined twenty percent of Poles and Lithuanians and Romanians and Spaniards and and Brits coming together and saying, "Listen, you're not listening to us, so we may not be a plurality. We may we may not be a plurality, but you've still you've got to change for the sake of us." I think that they are contemptuous of of groundswell democracy. I think everything you've just said could be applied more so to the British Houses of Parliament. I think it's a shame we didn't talk about Russia because that would have been an interesting philosophical discussion about big powers. Mm. Well, we can do that next year on the anniversary. Yeah. Absolutely. And the rise of global right-wing populism. But actually, no, why don't we you, didn't talk about you, that. we didn't, oh Christ. Mm. Well look, you at home, lazily, sitting there, passively listening to things that we're saying, why don't you just imagine how that conversation would have gone? Think about both sides, say them to, you, to each other, just in your head. Imagine that for another hour and a half. Cool. And, and by then, all means, dress up in costumes, that could work. Yeah. yeah. Do you have, Has anyone got anything they want to plug? I want you to, I'm going to do that first. I'm trying to get people to fund a book. I'm writing a book about art and economics and punk rock and stuff like that. Uh, and it's going to be really good. And you can go to yourartisworthless.com and you'll find out about that. And then you can send me money, which I desperately need. Yes, please pledge for it. It'll Anyone be else? amazing. Got anything you want to plug in? Apart from Book of Job. Yeah, no, that's, I'm doing that too. That's not, oh, yeah, let's okay. plug that. Chris is going to be in the Book of Job, which is going to be in... Um, the Ledbury Festival. The Ledbury Poetry on Festival. The, um, Eighth of July. Cool. Do yeah. pop down. Come to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. And on the eighth of June, the Argus is hosting its own EU debate in really? Brighton, um, with Daniel Hannan, 
and uh, Caroline Lucas. Oh, uh, and Do we need tickets? Do we need tickets? You Can we come? Should, uh, Do you we are, need tickets? No, everybody is invited to come Do and we get in a special up. place to be known. And I, I wouldn't have thought I'd get into a special place because <laughs> I know me, but... But it is going to be in a public forum, and we are very much encouraging people to come along. Wednesday, Wednesday of next week. Obviously, I should be better briefed on this. All I know is is the date, and I just have to check my diary for that. But I do know it's Wednesday of June. I do know it's Lucas versus Hanan, amongst others. I think it's Lucas and Kyle, actually, versus Hanan and somebody else. That's goodbye from me. Goodbye from... Ah, goodbye from me. And you as well. Bye. And you say goodbye, Colin. Goodbye. Bye-bye, people. Bye-bye. And the water laps at the heart.